Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Heidi Helfand, who is currently the Director of Product and Technology Excellent at Procore Technologies. Heidi is also the author of the book, Dynamic Reteaming. Heidi's here today from sunny California in the United States. Heidi Helfand, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks, Robbie. It's great to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software code? First thing that really comes to mind with well-maintained software code is that people aren't afraid to change it. It's not scary. It's not one of those legendary areas in the code base where if you have to make a change over there, you dread it, or what's going to happen, or maybe there's no tests, or the person that worked on it is long gone. You know, what can we do? It feels like pressure, and it feels like uh, just a lot of fear is present. How often have you been in a scenario where you've had to kind of overcome some of those fears or lead your team through that kind of challenge where the original developer is no longer around, it's a fully functioning set of software, you know it's working and it's providing valuable to the business, but the new people are intimidated by it. How do you help them kind of overcome that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've always been in in one of the the support kind of people uh, oriented roles. And one of the things that I've noticed is that some of the fear can be relatively invisible. So unless you really try to connect with people and understand how they're doing and how they're feeling, you might not you might not see this fear. You might not understand this fear. So I think definitely in my career, and it, it spans over 20 years in this industry, I remember in, in the early days at the first software startup I was part of, it was part of my job, second startup I was at, it was part of my job that I talked about with one of our founders that, that I would be kind of like a temperature taker. You know, one of the things that I always have done in my career is try to build relationships, building relationships and understanding how people are feeling so that if there's a scary piece of code or if there's something that is impacting their experience as a software engineer at the company, that I could help, you know, kind of mitigate it and and make sure that the people got what they needed. I've been a coach for many years and I, I coach in many different facets of software development, you know, all across, uh, whether it's with software engineers, product managers, user experience, all people that are involved in the creation of, of these things that deliver value to our customers. So really, I think, really trying to tap into the sentiment of the people and how they're feeling by forming relationships is really important. I think really incredible managers are able to do this, as well as uh, other kind of support type people like coaches. You know, knowing that I'm assuming a large portion of the audience for me for the podcast are software developers and they may, may or may not be in some sort of lead or managerial role. They might be curious like, oh, it's like there might be people that are maybe not at the moment because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but other people on their team that they've noticed like, I don't know if they're feeling super comfortable with it or do you have any advice on like, are there some signals that you think peers could recognize amongst each other? Like, oh, there m- maybe we have some challenges here. We're not kind of addressing. And I can read that with our, you know, because of my coworker seems to be hitting their head against the wall against very similar types of problems with this application. Like we can try to look out for people, get to know each other, build relationships. And we can do this through speaking with each other, doing a call like this where we can see each other and we can hear each other. We can also chat with each other and and form closer relationships that way. We can just try to leverage whatever communication channels we have so so that we we get to know each other. I, I really have always thought that if you if you take the time to get to know and care about the people that you work with, everything else is easier. If you're in a situation and it's particularly challenging, whether it's with the code, whether it's with another person that you are working with, it it always helps to not go it alone and to pair with someone, to work in a group, witnessing, you know, pair programming and programming in groups for years. I can tell you that 
I think it, it really helps when we encounter a challenging situation, whether it be not, we're not sure what the design is or, or maybe we're not sure how to implement a certain thing in a certain way or, or what we should do. Just not going it alone is really, really helpful. Some of the challenges that I've seen in the past, I remember the first startup I was at, uh, we built some screen sharing software. We, we got acquired years later, we invented GoToMeeting and GoToWebinar. That was the first startup that I was at. I remember in the early days when, when we were building the initial commerce system that we had, and it was something that we had developed in-house. I was not like a software engineer on the team, but I was a, I was a technical project manager at the time. And I remember when one of the engineers had left for a different opportunity and so much of the knowledge of that system left with him that it was such a visceral challenge for so many people that were left to try to finish this thing, get it to work and have it be reliable that when at the second startup that I was at, our founders, some of them were part of that first company, we did pair programming from the start, extreme programming from the start. And I think it was applying some of the lessons learned from being at the first startup where we'd have these it siloed knowledge that it just hurts. It, it, it's a setback when somebody leaves and, and you you inherit something that maybe you don't understand or it takes a lot of time or even just the pressure of having to work on something, especially if it's a mission critical system. We want to make it easier for our future friends who are working on the, the systems that we rely on. And not going it alone, I think, is a, is a huge uh, strategy for us. And then, you know, on the other hand, and it, it, is that if you're the only one working on one facet of your system, how long are you going to remain engaged and interested in working on that system? It, it's almost like you limit your options for future learning. It, like bring other people with you, have some redundancy there so that when you're ready for a change and you want to build something else or work over there with these people, it's easier. I, I think that it, it's a couple of things. It's about it's a personal thing about us and giving us more kind of liquidity to to work on other things. But then it's also about your friends and colleagues who are going to be working on that while you're maybe still at the company or maybe when you're at another company. And I don't think anyone really means to do to do anything like oh, I'm going to leave it like that and you know I don't care. I I, I believe that that we care about each other in software development. And I I. Um, I see more and more about this. I've worked with, I work in the consulting space where we work with other teams with their software projects and, you know, coming into some scenarios where you might have someone that's been around for a really long time and feels like they can't even really, like they almost feel like they'd be abandoning everybody if they were to leave their job for a different opportunity at some point because they know so much is tied up in their head and they're like, they've never been able to figure out how to get it out of their head and to share it with their coworkers or whomever else might be touching the coder, they didn't invest a lot of time into documentation and explaining why they're what the rationale for what a lot of what how they approach things. And that can be really problematic for new people coming in because that person's still kind of like, well, I need to not only take the time to do that, but there's so much to go through. How could we ever possibly do it? So they will tend to sometimes just keep plugging away the things that they're like, well, it'll be quicker if I just take care of it. And like, you feel like that becomes like the slippery slope. Like I'll take care of that. I don't want to burden you with this extra. This is going to take a while. I don't have time today. Maybe another day we'll come back and I can actually explain it. But in the meantime, I'll just take care of those things. And I'm guilty of that myself sometimes. And that's, I feel like it's always an interesting challenge for teams to navigate where it's kind of like the old guard and the new guard. And the old guards almost feel like this is my legacy to make sure this thing still runs and is useful. But I'm afraid if I leave, then everything's going to fall apart. And that's, I don't, I don't want that to happen. Yeah, I think, at, at, I, and I've def, I can completely relate to what you're saying. And it's something that I've seen time and time again, even with people become legendary. And we really appreciate what they do. And I think maybe it's, it's, a, it's a stage of development in our careers when we realize 
hey, I need to build systems that outlive me in that I can make a bigger impact if I try to see beyond just my contribution. I mean, if you think of the things that, that you're doing and then imagine if like next week you, you know, you decide to do something else or go somewhere else, how much could like easily continue on without your presence? Sometimes we get into the situations and we get an advanced warning and we hear one of our, you know, really respected colleagues who made tremendous contributions is leaving to go on to another opportunity. And one of the first things that I think about is whiteboards and video cameras. How can we interview them? You know, maybe just pretend like you're doing a qualitative research study and interview these colleagues about just all the questions that you have that can come to mind and try to make it lightweight and easy for them, which could be through, could be through speaking. Not all of us communicate uh, as easily through speaking. Maybe some prefer writing. So I think you can modify it depending on, on the person's interests. But the idea is that you, you want to try to try to get some early clues to solve the challenges you might have later. Yeah, that's, I think that's some some good advice there. Thinking about even just having them spend some time, as you said, like in front of a web camera, like a webcam or a video camera, and, and then up at a whiteboard, just explaining something, uh, which those things can always be captured. And will people hopefully go back and watch them one day? I think is sometimes the other question. It's like documentation can get ignored or forgotten about. Um, so it's it's an interesting like, that can get transcribed or. All, there's a lot of different ways you can do that, but I do think that's like that can be a definitely an, an effective way to do that. Like help deboard yourself from a project is like an important skill to have as well. And so, and not everybody has that opportunity until they leave, and then they're like, "Well, I've never actually left a position like this before." So here's my X number of weeks notice. Good luck. You know, kind of like hope. I, I wish the best for the rest of the team as you know as they move forward. Get it. So I think that. Anyways, that's that's an interesting uh, thing, and it kind of leads me into. I want to talk a little bit about your book, Dynamic Reteaming, which I think touches on probably a lot of this. So, one of the topics that you brought up in the in your book is kind of related to helping managers effectively integrate new hires into existing teams. So, can you share some of the common challenges that teams face when bringing on new people? Sure, sure. Yeah, there's a there's a chapter related to. I call it the one by one pattern of reteaming, which is one of the most common patterns of, of team change. So dynamic reteaming is essentially about people join our teams, people leave our teams, and sometimes our, our teams change uh, in more dramatic ways, like maybe a team splits in half, for example. So the book has patterns of these things. But anyway, when somebody joins the team, I think one of the key points in my experience and my research in this topic, I did interview worldwide colleagues on this in addition to kind of reflect on my experience uh, with all of this is uh, you want to help people develop a sense of belonging in the new environment. And so, you know, part of acquiring the feeling that you belong is having the opportunity to share about yourself as well as learn about the company. It's both of these things. And there's some interesting research in here that I quoted from the book, uh, Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And he, he quotes a, a study that is out of a lab in MIT. And they talk about how at a, at a call center, uh, they did a study where they had participants in two different groups. And the group that the group that was encouraged to share about themselves and either even had their names personalized on their company jackets had an easier time onboarding than those who just kind of were absorbed by the company and were assimilated into the company without sharing about themselves. I think one of the key ideas in feeling comfortable in a new situation is that you can, you can be yourself and you can express yourself. And so I think encouraging people to speak and not just listen at the beginning is, is advice that, that I have. Like we want to hear your ideas when you join the company, you don't have to reserve them until after a month until you feel like you figure out 
what's going on. I like to try to create and encourage a climate where people share their experience and their thoughts and opinions, especially when, when we're new, we see things when we're new in a company, we see things in a special way. Yeah. So that's one of the things. And I think also, and I think it's, it's due to some of my past experience at pair programming, or if you're not in a position, uh, which is coding, just working in a pair with someone or in a group can be highly, uh, it's like, it, it can be highly beneficial. I think about how, you know, you're saying show up and be themselves and share about themselves, or is this a combination of personal and professional type things you're kind of advocating for in terms of, you, you gave, you gave the, the reference of like a, the name on a jacket or something, but like trying to get a know about who they are as just a human beyond their code and, or is probably a combination of that and getting them to share some of their personal or professional opinions about how to approach things or having them contribute somehow, or whether that be through code or through in conversations, but to help see that the team is looking for to become a better version of itself, you know, than it was before they started. And I think, you know, I get the whole thing about people coming in and being absorbed by, well, this is how we do things. Here's how we built this thing. Here's how we get it up and running. Here's how we work on it. Here's our pull request process. Here's all of our documentation we can walk you through, but it find it interesting to hear about some ways that you think that can be really effective in like getting when when team's growing and maybe they're only hiring one person at a time, but that person comes in, how does the team outside of this being probably a managerial responsibility to some degree, but how does the team appears, what kind of advice could you offer them how to, to do that? I think effectively. Oh yeah. Yeah. And chapter 13 of my book has a lot of activities here. When a new person joins, it's a wonderful opportunity to have a retrospective about how you work together on the team and how you want to collaborate with each other going forward. So it's a really great kind of reason to stop and take a look at how, how things are going and how you want them to change. So I usually, um, we call this like a team calibration. So it's like a calibration session. How do we want to like you know, not everything uh, needs to be changed in how we work together, um, but we have an opportunity to take a look and and see how we want to iterate. You know, for activities to build relationships, one of the activities I love, I learned it from a coach named Lisa Atkins. It's called Market of Skills. So there's, I can share the step by step of how to do this, but basically, what people do is everybody, we use it in the virtual team environment these days, an easy, easy way to do this is have a shared slide deck. Everybody gets a slide, write your name on the top of the slide, and then put right down on there. These are the skills I bring to the team. These are the things that I feel I'm good at. These are my interests outside of work. This is what I want to learn in the next few months. And this is what I offer to teach you. And depending on the size of the team, if it's just like five people, what we'll, what we'll do next is each person will present their slide. And after I give you one, I'll give you um, one or two minutes to present your slide to the group. And then I'll give everybody one or two minutes to write in the speaker notes, some reactions and comments. What skills do you know they have that they didn't list? What resources or people do you think they should meet? in order to learn the things they said they want to learn in the next few months. And what do you think that they could teach everybody that they haven't listed? So even if you've been there for a while, you learn new things about each other. So there's a specific way that you can do this when it's in person. You know, a lot of the times I would like get everybody in a room and use posters, but we've been distributed for years at many of the places that I work. So a share, you know, we use the tech, you don't need any fancy whiteboards for this. Just use a shared slide deck. Then people don't, you know, have some sort of problem trying to edit the same file, but like something like that. And people are encouraged to, you learn things about people. I, I remember we learned that one uh, quality assurance engineer was able to take apart a motorcycle and put it back together. It just instantly raised respect on the team because many people can't do that. And so when we have the opportunity to share about ourselves like this, this stuff is not going to come. It, maybe it would take a year for me to understand that this person 
was a former professional boxer. True story. (laughs) (laughs) So we provide people an opportunity to share about themselves. So it's like a really kind of quick gel. You can do it in an hour. If you have... If you have a larger number of people, what I'll do is uh, everybody, like I've done it with, I've done it with 60 people. Basically what you do is you apply, there's a liberating structure pattern, which is a facilitation pattern called one, two, four, all. So people make their individual slide and then maybe you put them in breakout rooms of two to share with each other. And then you can get them in groups of four, then you can bring them back. Like you can just, just, you can pair people with up with three different people in sequence. So you kind of mix it up and it doesn't have to be perfect because people can read, read the records. So that's one I really love to do to help build these relationships with each other. And I've been doing it for years. And the nice thing about that one is it doesn't feel too touchy feely or squishy that it's, it, I've had great success with that one through the years and I, I've been doing it for years. Another really easy thing that you can do uh, we did it with uh, with our group of architects in in the past few months. Is share share a story uh, what you think was like a pivotal moment in your life with the team. Patrick Lencioni he wrote the books The Advantage Five Dysfunctions of a Team. He has activities that are are kind of like this, and and one of the things that he says is encourage like the leaders or the seniors to go first, or like if you have a manager to go first, kind of set the tone about the amount of information shared. People get to decide what they want other people on the team to know. And so that is like a simple thing. You, you think of a prompt like, tell me about a peak experience in your life. I actually have, an, I have this activity in my book about peak experiences. So this is a, a variant of that. I'll tell you about the time in my life when I had this amazing challenge that I overcame. It could have been that. It could be a time where I led the soccer team. There was a woman that told the story about uh, a per- former coworker who told the story about how she was the lead of her soccer team in high school and what that meant to her. So we tell each other our peak experiences. We do it in pairs and then we come together as a group. I tell my partner's peak experience, like what I relay, like the main ideas from it. And everybody does that. And then we listen as we're doing it. We listen for what we hear as the values present in the group. And we write those down. Maybe the values are courage or strength or perseverance or resilience or something else. Um, But then we're like, okay, this is, these are things that we as individuals feel are important and they're present here among our team system, among our group. And you do this with five different teams, you get different things that show up. So what I usually do is there will be a team and maybe the team has changed in some way. Somebody joins, somebody leaves. We have special activities for that too. It's important to acknowledge when people left and why and how we're going to carry on the awesome things that they did or whether we're just going to let them go and say, say goodbye, wish them well and not dwell on it so much. Sometimes we're glad they're gone. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm talking in general, in general. Sometimes it doesn't quite work out for whatever reason. You can, there's stories in my book about that, but a team has a change. I usually talk with someone in the team about what's going on. And then I'll suggest one of many activities. We'll pick one. So one team might say, oh, let's do the market of skills. And another team might say, let's do like a peak experience kind of thing. I don't force any of these activities on anybody. And I let people choose. And there's not one size fits all. Do these five things and magically you have an amazing team. But those are just the people-oriented activities. So there's people, work, workflow, and history-related activities I'm taking out a bunch of notes right now about what I actually want to do with some things now with my team here, um, my company. I, I like that a lot, like that those those exercises, because it seems like even you don't need to wait until you hire someone to do some of those things either. And so those are things, so other ways of just like shaking up some of your regular, like for example, we do like a monthly team, company-wide meeting where people give some presentations and now that's scheduled for next Friday. And, and I'm like, well, who's going to give some demos? And I'm like, wait a minute. I, want, I think I want to do this market of skills exercise now for next week. So none of my team will hear this before that, that happens, but I'm going to de- def- definitely dig into that in the book because I think that, that sounds like a, a good exercise. 
Well, I'm happy to talk further with you about it because depending on the number of people, um, I can help you get the timing down too. It's, it's a great, you know, I like activities that scale. So, so you don't, you know, you can, you can modify all, all of this stuff. You know, what about, you know, when, when, when folks are joining teams and there's the, the onboarding aspect you've touched on like pair programming and talking about like how team what the workflow might look like and there's ways to do that i think you touched on that calling it as like a team calibration session or something and in that scenario like do you have any sort of benchmarks internally where you work right now where you're trying to make sure that people feel like they can contribute say on a coding level if we're hire if you're hiring a software developer how soon do you hope that they're able to start making some actual code commits because i think a lot of developers feel like that ends up being the thing that you were hired for it's the artifact of your work do you have like a specific time frame you're trying to do is it something you try to do in a few first few days first few weeks within a month not that i'm aware of but i will say in general that when we're able to contribute you know it feels really good and if we can do that in conjunction with someone and have a part of it and, and play a part in that, it feels really good. But it's not like you must do this within a day. I, you know, some might say, and, and I've heard about this with other companies, none that I could remember their names, but like taking pride in that somebody commits code on after five hours or something like that. Um, I haven't seen that in my career as, as such. I think you can, you can contribute in different ways you know, it's a it's a really good question that warrants further explore, exploration. Yeah, how can I feel like I'm actually contributing and playing a part? One of the things that I like to do, and when I'm meeting with different software engineers, the idea always seems to resonate. Is everybody's gonna you're gonna have to meet with your manager or your lead on a regular basis, and it helps to keep a list of what you feel are your accomplishments. So maybe one of the accomplishments is checking in code after a certain amount of time, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, maybe it's um, helping to debug an issue that uh, others on the team have been struggling with for a few weeks. That's a very valid contribution. You might not be the one that checked it in, but you certainly contributed to solving the, the challenge. So what I like to do is I have I have a one pager that I go over with on a regular basis whenever I have a one on one with my manager and I encourage other people to do this. Not everybody's going to see what we do or witness what we do and we're going to forget about what we do. <laughs> so it helps to keep a list. So keep a list with I like to keep a list with these are my questions and kind of new information and then maybe I'm working on you know, project A, project B, project C, or, you know, what, what my areas of work are. And I write my questions, but at the end of my list, I have, these are what I view as my accomplishments or the things that I want to remember later. So if I were to reflect on it, you know, many of us go through review processes and other things, or if later it's important to the person to try to go for an advancement or something, try to get promoted, you have the case, you make the case for yourself because you've written down your contributions and what you th what you're really proud of otherwise we're going to forget especially if we have a manager that manages a lot of other people and they're not witnessing us directly you have to own your story to your manager about what you've contributed it's so important yeah we have to own that story we we can't be invisible right we have to we have to share what we did and it's it's valid to write your list down and share it with your manager and to talk about like, I'm really proud about doing this. People need to, you know, kind of share about themselves. Right. It's being an advocate for yourself. I think that, that, that's important. I've, you know, I'm, I've managed a lot of software developers over the years and I can only recall a few people that actually ever did something like that. And then I also realized like, you know, in hindsight, how much of that could have been something that I helped set the expectation for like, Hey, let's work in this kind of fashion where can you, I'm not going to witness it. I'm not going to see everything. Um, I can go look in Jira and see the tickets you were part of and what projects you've helped contribute to and see your commits, but that doesn't necessarily tell the story. Right. It's like, it's like, those are artifacts of the work you've done, not necessarily 
kind of a, a collection of accomplishments. So I, I like that idea of like encouraging people to do that. And for those listening, I don't think you need to wait till your manager brings it up. That's something you should could be doing anyhow, like starting today. And you don't, it doesn't mean that you're a junior person that needs to write it all down. I, I was talking with a, a, a wonderful principal engineer that I work with and he's doing a lot of things across many teams and these larger initiatives. And it's exactly the kind of thing that you do when, when you're like a principal software engineer, you're making a wider impact than just inside one team. But if, if people don't know about it, you know, write it down and it's, these are talking points for your meeting. And, and it's also cool to just, you know, look at it later. I, I, I looked at my, I did it in 2020 and when I was doing my end of the year, I did a self-review. We had to do self-review. So I did a self-review, and then I was able to look at my list of all this stuff and then write my self-review, and, and I, then I started a fresh document for 2021. I know the priorities that I have. I worked them out with my manager, and so now I, I'm like, I have this clarity, and I can go forward and try to make a difference, try to make an impact. It's helped me because I've always had more of a squishy kind of vague role where I have to chart my impact, create the, get the outcomes created, and, and create communities of practice to get work accomplished. So in my vague kind of morphy role, it's really helped me, but I think it helps people, other people too. As you just kind of said, your Morphe role, um, you're the, I understand it, you're the, currently the Director of Production and Technology Excellence at Procore Technologies. For those listening, what might be involved with that particular role based, at least as, as of today? Yeah, so the, the title is uh, Director of Product and Technology Excellence. And basically what that means is I help, you know, I focus on excellence and trying to help people get better at whatever they're doing. But I, and I work with software engineers, I work with product managers, I work with UX engineers. So I work across our whole product and technology organization. So it's, yeah, sometimes in, in companies, titles are tied to like the formal department name that you have. Um, but basically what I do, and I actually um, describe the approach in a later chapter of my book is... I, I'm really an in, kind of an internal consultant, helping the organization grow, helping the organization through change. I started working at this company as a consultant and then joined full time after kind of really falling in love with the, the company. So I joined about three years ago. And basically, you know, I do a wide variety of, of uh, agile coaching kind of people-oriented coaching, depending on whatever challenges we face. One initiative that I worked on a lot last year was partnering with uh, different architects and engineers to teach teams how to forecast when work will be done. You know, we every team, every team needs a good strategy for answering the question, when will it be done? There's different ways that we've seen people attempt this uh, over 20 years. We, meaning me and one of my main collaborators, um, Tim Doherty, who's, who's an architect at Procore, we became interested in this question and solving this challenge and better equipping our teams to forecast when work will be done. So we created, we created some in-house training based on training that we learned from uh, a man, Dan Vacanti, who wrote a book called When Will It Be Done? And his other book is Actionable Agile Metrics. But basically, in a nutshell, we we helped our teams become more predictable, and we trained several teams in this. You know, as you go through time in a company, there are different things that take focus that you should really help in terms of excellence or getting better at what you do. So that's kind of one thing. Team health is always, at any company that I've been at, another focus that that I pay attention to. And, you know, what does it mean to have a healthy team? What does it mean to have coming up with the organizational definitions around that and coaching around that, benchmarking, applying services, benchmarking again to help people get better and have a successful team is another focus. We'll be back with our interview with Heidi in just a moment. Hello, it's me, Robbie. Yep, just me. Just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations remotely valuable, 
I encourage you to go out to the sidewalk with some chalk and write maintainable.fm everywhere. If that's too much to ask, maybe you can just pop a quick tweet and say, hey, I enjoy Maintainable Software Podcast on Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can write a review on Apple Podcasts. All those things would be greatly appreciated. Also, do you know someone that I should probably interview here on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Heidi Helfand. So one of the things I also wanted to talk with you about was the, the scenario where, say you have a team, if we talked a little bit about onboarding, like say a, a new person, like one new person coming and joining the team. And then there's like, there's also scenarios where teams might be struggling a little bit and someone decides that there's going to be some, maybe a relief valve. We're going to hire like this external contracting team to come in and we're going to hire a few, maybe experts in this field to come help us sort out some of these problems, like maybe on a coding level. So do you have any advice for teams that might be think, might be worried about like, well, does this mean like I'm screwing up because we need to hire some quote unquote experts that, you know, my manager found through a couple of Google searches that, because I work in the consulting space and I know sometimes like we come, our team comes into spaces where the team's not super excited about us being there necessarily, but we know that they're the other stakeholders are like, we don't know what else to do right now. So we're going to try this to see if that helps um, mitigate some problems. So in those types of team dynamics, do you have any advice for the team that might be bringing on someone and to not worry that it's like maybe a bad reflection of them doing a bad job necessarily? Yeah, I do have advice about that. And, you know, I think in, in any kind of consulting engagement like that, you need to people need to kind of design an alliance or, or the working agreements of, okay, um, we're having some new team members join. We're trying to solve certain challenges and here's what they are. You you need to talk about it in the open. So people aren't just showing up one day and everybody's like, Oh, they're here. Well, who are they? Well, you, you haven't really talked, like you need to talk about it with the team. Um, and I think focusing on the learning is always really helpful when I was at the second startup that I was at, this is Appfolio, from early on, I think I was the 10th employee there. So I was with our first software engineering team. And we engaged with a consulting company that came in who were experts in pair programming, test-driven development. They helped us set up continuous integration. It was before all the continuous deployment stuff. This was, this was, this was years ago, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. We, we have very senior engineers as part of our first team, and our founders really, really um, thought it was important that we didn't have those silos of knowledge that we talked about earlier in the podcast. We really wanted to have you know, maintainable software that this was a large Rails app. The founders really believed in test-driven development and getting feedback after you make a change to the code base, and they wanted to set up this continuous integration. They wanted to build a company with roots and strong roots that continued in pair programming, pairing and switching pairs. And, and they really, so they really wanted this to build this, this culture of really maintainable code. I mean, it ties to the name of your podcast. Um, but it was, it was kind of a, uh, it was hard for them to sell it themselves. They were both technical, but they felt like they needed to bring experts in to teach us these practice to teach these practices. So, you know, what they would do and what they'd done for many years is let's say there's a big change that's coming and it could be something like this, or it could be something else. They would first have one-on-ones with each people. And we would do this back in the day when we were in person, we would take a walk, you'd take a walk one-on-one and they would try to hear people's concerns, try to understand what they thought about this upcoming change, and then they'd talk about it as a group. So depending on the change that's going to happen, if you get to know the people that are there, you might imagine that, well, this person might have a harder time with this than this other person. So you want to you talk with them about it so that they have a, a place to, to ask questions and understand, and it doesn't have to be in front of everybody else. So I think, I think it's, you know, you have... 
including the team and change decisions is highly important. If the company, whatever the company is, if they're going to bring in a bunch of consultants for whatever reason, like talk to the people doing the work so they understand why. And if, is that the only solution or is there something else that might be more useful? Uh, I, I think we can't make leadership teams can't make these changes without the input of the people, even if they're going to make the decision. Decision-making is different than getting input on the decision. Uh, sometimes if, if a leadership team might think, oh, let's apply solution X, but to the team it could feel that solution X is a huge distraction and counterproductive. It's like not an appropriate thing. It's like, you know, like to think of it as like poorly done foreign aid. Like if you're trying to help me, but I don't need that kind of help. In organizational changes of any sort, if the team feels ownership over the change, you're probably going to have a greater amount of success. People feel all sorts of things, you know, with reteaming, with different types of organizational changes. And you know, it's not, it's, it, it's totally not easy. That, that's why I was digging into it with this book, because, you know, in many cases it can be, it can be quite challenging and, and troubling. Sometimes it rips your heart out. Other times it's that if, if you were included in the change and you want the change and you feel like it's a great solution to help your company succeed, you feel dynamite, but it could, you know, your mileage may vary. That's true. The, uh, thinking about the different times where needing to make big decisions and knowing that the team's not necessarily going to hundred percent be on board with it, but I think there's that part of making sure that they felt like they could contribute and add some input into that decision definitely can go a long ways. And I think that's something I even need to, as in my role, remind myself probably more often because I'm like, well, I need to just make the decision so we can move forward. But do we have the time to talk to every single person about this? And do I have the time to have to try to explain why we did something in retrospect either and cause like dissatisfaction or if, you know, might've heard something from someone like, I could have told you that this wasn't going to work out. And we had this other idea we could have talked about. So I think there's some, some good input for probably everybody in that. And so I think for those listening who may not, again, be in the managerial role, but they might be seeing decisions making, are there some ways or strategies you could suggest to them on how they could raise those topics with, say, leadership? Like if they see a decisions being made, like how do they how do they get to be a part of the decision? That and or if they're curious about something that they know was be, is, is about to be decided on and, and they haven't been explicitly asked to provide input on it. And they're like, oh, I don't know. I feel like I should say something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always encourage people to, the first thing to do is to talk to your manager because your manager's job is to help you navigate through the company and to look out for you and help you grow and succeed. And sometimes they know things that you didn't know and you made something up that really wasn't true. And so instead of doing that in a public forum or with your boss's 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 boss, instead of going to them first, start with your manager. See what your manager knows. Like share the ideas that you have. I always, I always think like start there. You could also maybe talk to a trusted friend at the company who's, who might be privy to more information than you that, that you feel like, oh, I, w I wonder if, if these ideas might resonate uh, with this person. You, you might also try that. But I think the, what, what I've found in my years is the, is the best course of action is, is to typically uh, go to the manager. Now, sometimes, I guess because I'm later, I'm later in my career, I'm like 20 years into this, Depending on what the issue is, I will go one-on-one -on -one to whoever I think is appropriate, depending on, on, on what it is. And, and, you know, that's where kind of courage comes in, courageous leadership comes in. After a while in your career, you can look back and you can take inventory of some of the experiences that you've had. And you develop a confidence that if I share my ideas, like, and I really believe in them and I do it kind of in a polite fashion, it, it tends to work out. I think that's some good advice there. While we're in this particular topic and like, you know, going to manager first is a good thing. What if you are a, someone that's in a part of a team and a coworker comes to you kind of complaining about something that, and they're, 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 they're venting a little bit about something that might be being decided upon and they're rather than talking to the manager. And so if you're the person that's all of a sudden got a Slack message or, 
or a conversation and someone's kind of complaining to you, but they're like, I don't really feel like I want to participate in, I can listen, but I feel, would, what, what would you recommend they do in response to someone rather than maybe to help let them like air out their, their frustration or something? I think really when somebody trusts you and comes to you and vent to you, it's in a way it's a compliment because they trust you. Can you handle that? Can you handle it on an ongoing basis? So let's say if you're going to allow someone to vent to you on an ongoing basis, I mean, it could, it could feel kind of heavy after a while and it can drain you of energy. And so I think it's worth thinking about whether you want to allow that because you don't, you don't need to allow, allow that kind of input into you, especially if you know, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to completely drain you. That's where like kind of knowing yourself and self-care comes in. You know, I coach many people and a lot of the times if I'm doing one-on-one coaching over the years, sometimes at the beginning of a coaching session, it's a lot of venting. And for some people it takes a certain amount of time and then they're kind of empty. They'd like said all that they needed to say, and it was actually really helpful to them. Maybe do it going on a walk or not in chat, um, I would not do it in, in a record like that. I would, you know, meet with someone and speak. You could, if it's too heavy for you, you could suggest that they talk with someone else and depending on the content of, of what it is, um, have they talked with their manager? Is there a coach available that they could talk with in their organization? Depending on the, the subject matter if throughout the years, it's my, you know, I, I, I recommend other professionals if somebody is sharing something super heavy with me and I feel like, oh, you know, maybe they should, we have resources, uh, mental health resources, so people can be referred to therapists if they need to be. People, in the absence of information, we make things up. Brene Brown wrote a wonderful book, Dare to Lead, and she talks about this. You know, sometimes we might hear about a change and then we'll make something up about it that's completely not true. Knowing that is possible, well, you know, we'll jump to conclusions in the absence of information. That's why when we're rolling, if people are rolling out any changes, you want to try to reduce the ambiguity. You want to try to reduce the amount of time where people aren't wondering, like, what's going to happen. Um, I feel like I'm getting a lot out of this conversation for my my role in a leadership role here and thinking about what people on the team might be going through and then how... I worry about things. I'm like, am I saying too much? Am I saying enough? Am I over communicating? I'm always second guessing myself a little bit because I don't have a lot of historical references of like uh, people that I'm like, ooh, they did it really well, and I model myself after that because I didn't just didn't really have that earlier in my career. So it's always kind of like I stumbled myself into running a company at one point, and now I'm like, oh, how do I do this? And so it's a lot of like having conversations with people like you or reading books and trying to get some ideas about things. But I'm always second guessing myself because I don't feel like you know, it's that whole imposter syndrome thing that kind of pops up every once in a while. It happens to, I think, everybody in every type of role, probably. So I don't know exactly where I'm going with this thread outside of this thing. Thanks. I'm really appreciating you kind of digging into this quite a bit. And I wanted to kind of touch on the different facets for people as contributors and within teams, people, peers, and what the manager roles are responsible for and how that relationship. And I like, you know, the topic around, you know, some of those exercises that you're doing to help teams kind of prove how they gel together and just to learn about each other. So that maybe knowing that you gave that example of like a coworker that can take a motorcycle apart engine and put it back together. Like that's not something that everybody knows about their peers. Like I know there's people on my team. It's like one person was a high school valedictorian and I don't know. Most people know that on the team, you know, it's like, I'm aware of that cause I'm that person's manager, but I'm like, I don't know if that's ever really been shared. So, and I think that gave me some sort of appreciation about that person. Like, so I, I think about it. I'm like, oh, that person's does a lot of hard work, put in the time and energy in school when I dropped out of high school. So it's like, I, there's like a different sort of respect there. I think that can kind of come out of those, some of these ex- exercises that you're kind of outlining and definitely include links to the, the book. So people can go pick that up as well. Is there a, you know, with, with, if within the book, uh, is there a kind of a target audience? Do you think this is mostly ideal for people in the leadership roles, engineering managers, Type, type roles, or do you see this as being a good book for also people that are kind of day-to-day contributors that may or may not want to kind of move into a leadership role at some point? In general, I'm all about the IC. 
I'm all about the individual contributor. There's ideas in here for managers. It's helpful for people that contribute to decisions around organizational change or team change. Some of the best teams I've worked with have had retrospectives and have decided, you know what, we're kind of big. Things are really kind of challenging and taking longer and our work is unrelated. Maybe we should split into two teams. So I think it's it's the team member, it's the manager, it's the leader. But my, my whole, I think, main interest in life is uh, the individual contributor, to, to be perfectly honest. I just love, um, I love helping people try to grow and succeed. Doesn't mean, especially, and I think, you know, at many companies, everybody's so focused on manager development and developing managers and career path of managers that I really love the, when I see, uh, I think Charity Majors, she has an article about the pendulum, moving to IC, moving to manager, moving to IC, moving to manager. And when I see people like engineering directors, VPs, becoming high-level ICs again and getting into the work and creating things. I like to cultivate that. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Couple of last questions. One, I know that Procore's engineering team has primarily been on site and or distributed or prior to the pandemic, have you noticed any kind of stark contrast to how your teams are collaborating now in the middle of a pandemic than before pandemic? So we have really good support, I think, at Procore related to how people are doing, how families are doing, and put yourself, put your family first, I think are some direct quotes from our leadership and take care of yourself. I mean, even with everything that happened this week in Washington, D.C., we were encouraged to take care of ourselves and take care of our families. And if we feel like maybe we we should take the afternoon off or, you know, like, that's fine. If we feel like, oh, we it helps us to, to dive into some content area, like, go ahead and do that. Like, there's a lot of empathy, I think, about about things, which is I, one of the reasons I really appreciate. Uh, yeah, pre-pandemic, we were distributed. And one of the things that I love as someone who facilitates different activities and groups of people, people are one, it's one person, one screen. We can hear each other and see each other better than we could before. We'd be connected, maybe a few different conference rooms or two people in two different locations, five people in one conference room, and you couldn't see or hear people as well as you can now. So one of the kind of benefits to all of this, I guess, is this one person, one screen, one microphone, we can hear and see each other better. Yeah. So we, we had all the, we had all of the tools and other things in place before this happened, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to trivialize any of it because it's been heart wrenching, very, very challenging time in, all of our lives and in the world. And I, I never imagined anything like this personally. Um, no, no, I can definitely appreciate that. You know, so let's imagine that there's a few people listening to this episode right now, I hope for, um, for both our sake. Um, they've been at their company for a few years now. And like, let's particularly think about uh, individual contributors and maybe they felt like they've raised some concerns about things like technical debt or just there's some things, initiatives that, product team hasn't been, from their perspective, hasn't been pri- able to prioritize and therefore make time for. And maybe they've asked, okay, can we refactor this area of the code or we want to revisit this at some point to remove some of the, the challenges that we're facing on a day-to-day basis. And they've heard not right now, maybe later, a few too many times that they started to think, translate that to, we're never going to do that. So I no longer worth asking anymore. What advice could you offer them on how to take some action today? I, I really feel for that. And I've seen that before in my career. 
And I've also seen cases where we're talking to our product managers, to our product leadership, and we're telling them about this area of code that really needs some attention. And it's going to take some time and it's going to be larger than we thought it was going to be. It's like this big thing under the hood that we really need to prioritize. And here's why. And I, I've, when people communicate that with, these are the benefits that we're going to get if we get to do this work, like this is the cost of not doing this work. Sometimes people are like, I'm so glad you told me. But I think, I think, you know, why does it have to be so hard, right? As you go along in your career, you notice different patterns, patterns at different companies, patterns in collaborating with different people, just patterns of learning and speaking for the code and speaking for the technical epics that we must do is an area that we as an industry need to get better at speaking for the code. I have a I have an image with the Lorax. I speak for the code, right? And the Lorax speaks for the trees. But imagine the Lorax with his sign and it says code on it. If you're constantly building features and constantly building features and all the signals that you're getting is, you know, we have to develop all this stuff. You're doing the best you can. You're doing these features. If you're never encouraged to share about what we need to do from an engineering perspective, it, it, it might feel like the voice is dampened. And, and for me that like, it just rips my heart out because I want to nurture that development of this engineer who stays technical and becomes a higher level IC because that's, that's an amazing career path, right? So how do we nurture that engineer to speak for the code and to communicate what he or she sees so others can understand it. And so it's a, it's a whole kind of thing to develop. If you keep trying, keep trying, and, and you're not getting anywhere, it's very discouraging. There's only so much time you can do that before, you know what? There's gonna be places that are gonna listen. And so you might consider another opportunity. Any, any kind of well-rounded development whether you want to call it a roadmap or a vision or whatever, needs to take into account the things that we do for the customers, the things that we do for the company, what we need to do for the code. So it's not going to, we will have challenges if we don't pay attention to maintaining our systems. And, and I credit my, my wonderful coworkers, Rain Heinrichs and, and Eric Dobbs. We have an initiative where we're learning from incidents. What's that feedback that you're learning from different incidents across time that's going to inform your development? Because that needs a seat at the table. And those are signals for the future roadmap that you have. And so I think I, I'm really optimistic because we're cultivating, we're cultivating leaders now in the industry who are gonna are gonna speak for the code and are gonna take these these uh, signals that we're learning and are going to communicate back to our, our product and other partners. And, and they're going to really appreciate it because, you know, I see that I see, I see these wonderful trends from the learning from incidents communities and uh, other things that I feel like is a privilege to, uh, to learn and be a part of one of the initiatives I'm helping support now this year. Nice didn't realize you you work with rain so say hi for him to him for me <laughs> go back in the the ruby on rails community oh, so definitely yeah incredible person i've learned a lot with him indeed i haven't seen him in a couple of years I remember bumping into him in the um at pal's bookstore here in portland there's like a huge bookstore here independent bookstore here and it was kind of and he, there he was in the uh, technical consulting or technical uh depart section of books there and he's like, oh, you got to check out these few books. And that was the last time I chatted with him. I need to reconnect with him at some point. So with that, a few last quick questions. Uh, you know, you had mentioned Brene Brown's book earlier, but are there any other, uh, you know, feel free to, if that's the recommendation you want to give here, are there any non-technical slash software related books that you find yourself recommending to people in our industry on a regular basis? Crucial Conversations is a wonderful book that gives you syntax for having challenging conversations. It's a skill that you know, many of us need to improve, especially in conflict. How can we communicate in a non-triggering way with other people? So I love the book, Crucial Conversations. Um, another one, 
for managers, Radical Candor is a, is a great book about giving feedback that will help people grow and giving feedback that might be dif- kind of challenging to give. For those who are into and working with very large teams and want to get better at facilitation, liberating structures, there's a community, there's a book, there's a website, scalable ways to facilitate meaning-making in your teams. I love and have learned so much from the Liberating Structures community. Excellent. I'll definitely include links to you for the audience in the show notes for all of those. And so where can listeners best follow your thoughts on the, the, the world of software technology and leadership online? Yeah. I mean, I have a website, HeidiHelfan.com. I have, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm not very vocal. I'm more quiet. So if anybody, you know, is interested in pursuing any of these ideas, you know, just contact me, DM me or something. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Heidi. Thanks for talking shop with us. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. It was fun. Oh, 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 oh.